1: And good morning and welcome to the Tuesday edition. Yep, it's uh, Tuesday already. Just get ready to head into the middle of the week on uh, the show. Got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. I mean, we're going to be covering everything from the census to the Oscars. A plethora
0: of material.
1: plethora of material and a lot of myths about the market. We're going to get into that today as well as also. So uh, also our Technically Speaking post is up today on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We're going to be going through some of the some of the topic of that today, talking about some of the myths of the market where we are currently in the markets. This is really kind of a follow-up to yesterday's article talking about the fact that, you know, in, in an environment where you have really high valuations, low returns of the future, Are all but guaranteed, and this is historically speaking, right? And of course, as we discussed yesterday, that doesn't mean that every year is going to be low. That's you know, this is one of the main questions that we get is like, well, why should I invest in the markets if returns are going to be zero to two percent for the next decade? Why should I invest money today? I'll just stick it in the bank, right? Well, that's not what that means, and and so yesterday's article really kind of goes through this idea of how how returns become low over a decade, and that's because it you're going to have a bear market somewhere along the way. And it's just a question of when, and it's just a question of the duration, right? And that, that decline, and then the recovery, is what slows your rate of return over time. So, and again, this is, this is just how markets work and just functionally how math works <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. But today's a little bit of a follow-up uh, to that, talking about some of the myths of, of these ideas that you know, certain things justify overpaying for stocks and there's really no no historical precedent that suggests that's the case. So that's kind of today's article, and we'll get to some of those uh, charts and graphs today. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Fed. Um, the Fed meeting is tomorrow, and, of course, all eyes are on the Fed. And really, the question is about the Fed is when exactly are they going to start hiking rates, right, tapering, tapering all this QE, hiking rates, if the economy is recovering and you've, you know kind of got the world back on track why do you need to keep doing more more liquidity issues and this is one of the things that really you know was a mistake that ben bernanke made back in 2010 2011 is that instead of beginning to hike interest rates, you know, all this liquidity they are flooding into the markets is lifting asset prices. What they should have been doing simultaneously is raising the Fed funds rate while they had all the liquidity going into the market so that, well, in that case, when you got to the next recession, which you're always going to get to, then you had the ability to lower rates, right? Well, they waited way too long to try to raise rates, and that led to the, you know, sell off in, in 2018. And then, of course, they had the taper tantrum in 2019. They started lowering what little bit of rate hike they had done. They had to lower that back to zero, start more QE. They never really got themselves out of emergency mode. Now, 11 years after the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve still remains in emergency mode in terms of bailing out supporting the economy, which really should lead you to asking the question, is that if it requires so much liquidity and Fed support to keep the markets going up, Just how strong is the economy? And that's really the question that we've all got to answer. And of course, that has consequences longer term. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the markets, um, because this has really kind of been the hot topic over the last couple of days. Um, You know, the market had a a good day yesterday, you know, opened up, you know, a little bit, kind of flopped around, uh, had a sell off midday, kind of rallied back up a bit at the end of the day. Didn't really go much of anywhere. And again, we're sitting here right within the top of this uh, kind of this consolidation channel. Again, as we've talked about kind of You know, ad nauseum now for the last week or so, Uh, we're on this money flow sell signal, which which simply suggested that you know prices are kind of capped on the upside temporarily, and you know still money flows are very strong here. Money's going into stocks; people are buying stocks. They're just not really able to lift it because they're being met with sellers at the same time. So prices really aren't going anywhere. But lots of support here. Again, not a lot of downside risk at the at the moment. Not a lot of reason to do anything. Our money flow indicator is starting to flatten out here. So, as we said, that we think that this is probably going to turn here in the next uh, you know, few days, uh, maybe even as early as next week. Um, we'll see this start to turn back up into a buy signal. That potentially sets us up for a run through the end of the seasonally strong period, which is the end of May. So, as we, you know, there's the old adage, right, Selling May go away. Well, we're kind of into that, you know, this, this kind of the end part of the seasonally strong period. So likely going to get a little bit of push here in the markets as we kind of get through earnings season. Again, earnings are going to be good. The earnings bar was not that high. Companies, are, you know, we're going to have 80 percent of companies beat, you know, earnings as usual. But it's the quality of the earnings that are important. And one of the things that we're seeing pop up in a lot of the earnings announcements, and we'll talk about that this morning as well because that has to do with the Fed, is inflation. Right. A lot of these companies are starting to really talk about the impact of inflation. They're going to have to eventually pass that cost down to consumers and consumers are already seeing this on a lot of a lot of areas of, of the economy in terms of higher prices. Used car prices, example, have soared here because of the chip shortage. You can't really get a new car. And so people are buying used cars as well. And there's just simply not a lot of inventory right now um kind of a, a conflux of events or confluence of events right uh, you know the economic shutdown caused the chip shortage and at the same time all the rental car companies were going out of business so they sold off all their rental cars uh early and now there's just a lack and usually those those used car companies are rolling over their inventory of, of their rental cars so there's kind of a constant supply of used cars to the market that has just evaporated if you tried to rent a car lately like we did they're simply not available you cannot get one because a lot of these companies have just sold off the vast majority of their inventory to stay in business so this is all having consequences of much higher prices so people buying used cars today are going to have a really bad time you know in three or four years when they decide to trade it in and there's basically no value there because they way overpaid for the price of a used car today But hey, if you need a car, you gotta buy a car. Um, But keeping all this in mind, this is all gonna weigh in markets, and this is why, as we've been talking about here lately, that probably economic activity will peak this quarter, second quarter. So first quarter, second quarter, Peak of economic activity, we're start to see slower rates of economic activity as we get through the rest of this year. Uh, again, so that's why I'm saying you know probably somewhere around June, July, we're going to start to see um, our weekly uh, money flow indicator start to roll over here. Got a little bit more upside here again. This supports uh, prices to the upside at the moment. Again, probably not a lot of upside here because of this deviation we currently have between. Uh, the current price of the market and the 50 and the 200 week moving averages is just it, this extreme deviations are very hard to maintain for very long. It's almost like a gravitational pull on prices. So probably not a lot of upside here over the next couple of weeks. Get into midsummer, probably have a bigger correction here, kind of reset the table for the markets a bit somewhere, you know, five, 10 percent range. Give you a better opportunity to put money to work next year. I think it's become a much more challenging uh, year for the markets. Uh, particularly if the Fed does talk about, as we expect, starting to talk about tapering, money, uh, tapering their QE programs and potentially even having to hike rates because of higher interest rates and uh, inflation in the market. So, all right, we're going to come back after the break. We've got a lot of, like I said, we've got a lot of stuff to get into. Some funny stuff this morning. We got some funny stuff, right? Get your day started right here on the Tuesday on the way to work. And got some serious stuff as well to get into, all coming up on The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is out, or technically speaking, on the future of low returns for the markets. Be right back after the break.
0: The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last Lunch and Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch and Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon. We'll sink our teeth into the Alphabet Soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch and Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at RealInvestmentAdvice.com. Dot com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show.
1: And hey, hey, welcome back to this morning. Fox News headline this morning. New York City police officer killed by alleged drunk driver. Apparently, we need to ban cars because, you know, drivers are not responsible with cars. I know everybody's got to have a license to drive, you know, but we should probably ban those. Sorry, a little bit of lunacy this morning. (laughs) It'll never happen. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the whole, it's the same, same yep. idea of banning guns, right? Yep, so yep, there yep. you go. Uh, I guess we got to ban knives, too. You know, I th- yeah. The next thing, you know, something is in the process of getting banned slowly but surely. What's that? The Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a chart up this morning. Matt's Idea Shop on Twitter put out the. Viewership through the years, starting in 2014, 43 million people tuned into the Oscars in 2021, 9.8. Now, and interestingly enough, this is about the time that the Oscars went woke, right? Um, And got all political. So, you know, maybe, you know, it would seem like, you know, over the years of declining viewership, there's not been one year that viewership has ticked up for the Oscars. So that tells you two things. One, either the Oscars are just boring where people don't want to watch the political commentary one, one of the two but it was interesting because Netflix won seven awards right they won the most awards at the Oscars but I figured out that the Oscars have now become millennial soccer <laughs> what did they win awards for best hair <laughs> really yeah best makeup
0: I got to say some of the material on Netflix is pretty good.
1: It is good, but I mean and you know, on you know, Amazon. But, uh, exactly. No, no, I'm not saying the material's not good. I'm just saying that, you know, we're now down to giving out Oscar awards for who did the best hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's supposed to be best actor, best actress, best mm. movie, you know, those Script. Best you, hair. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Netflix won 7 awards. Congratulations, Netflix. Disney came in second with four. Um, but I thought I thought the comment back because you can't make this up was from Chuck Sh- best comment about the Oscars came from Chuck Schumer Chucky Chuck Schumer I've got a clip of this up oh I'm over here not yeah you're not paying attention to the, to the screen for our for our live stream viewers you've got to stay on top of this so Chuck Schumer sitting at home, he says, excited to be watching the Oscars with an ice-cold plant-based beer. Thanks, Joe Biden. What? Okay, so hold on for a second. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I like, I like beer. And I like a good IPA that's blended from cow meat. Said no one ever. <laughs> 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 I don't know where Chuck buys his beer normally, but all beer is plant-based. It <laughs> comes from barley <laughs> primarily. <laughs> um, so, you know, personally, I like to sit around with you know a plant-based vodka <laughs> and a little bit of sparkling water, maybe <laughs> watching <laughs> watching a movie. Uh, if you didn't know that vodka comes from potatoes, yeah. <laughs> so just checking <laughs> but i mean look i get the idea of wanting to be all woke and everything but you know this is one of those things where millennials go okay boomer <laughs> at least <laughs> at least get your plant-based products correct <laughs> anyway can't make that kind of stuff up uh, a couple of things this morning uh, i thought one of the interesting uh things so we just had the census 2020 you'll remember uh, under the Trump administration, President Trump was really kind of pushing back on the census. He wanted to keep the census as, you know, what it should be is that you count the number of citizens uh, of the United States. And the Democrats were pushing back. No, no, no. We need to count everyone, illegals included. Right. Whether you're he- if you're here illegally, we're going to count you as part of the census. OK, great. Fine. That's what they did. And the reason for this is because the Democrats were convinced that with, if you start counting the illegals, that that would allow the Democratic states, particularly country, uh, countries, states like California, could be a country, uh, states like California to pick up more seats in the House. Ironically, that didn't happen. The winners and losers of the reapportionment, and this was due to the 2020 census, Right. Texas picked up two seats. Now, currently right now, it's still Republican, but uh, (laughs) it's not going to be that way long, considering all the Californians and New Yorkers moving to Texas. Um, So Democrats may get two seats back next year. Um, Anyway, Florida uh, picked up a seat. North Carolina picked up a seat. Colorado picked up one. Oregon picked up one. Montana picked up two. Okay, Uh, sorry, picked up one. California lost one, New York lost one, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and West Virginia lost one. Now, the important thing about that is, is that when you net all that out, Republicans actually picked up a lot more seats because of this reapportionment over what's happening. Now, remember, this, now this is kind of an ironic situation if you've got to kind of think about this a little bit. So part of this is due to immigration. Okay, so where do people immigrate to? Texas. <laughs> right, they're coming across the border, Texas, Arizona, and some into California. Um, but where's everybody moving to? Texas, right? They're moving from California to Texas, uh, and this has been going on for a couple of years. So when you go to do the census and they go to count everybody else, right? California's been losing population, and Texas has been picking it up. So ironically, um, California loses a seat; Texas gains two seats. Now, this is all based on population. Now, this is also going to work as part of the congressional redistricting as well. So, when this is going to come up in the next year or so, when they start to re, uh, redistrict all the congressional districts, um, you know, this is also going to change these boundaries a bit. Uh, the av- the, on, on average, right now, each con- Congress member represents about 750,000 people on average. Um, now, here's the interesting thing about this is that this is, this is important because right now, the majority, the Democrats control the House by a very slim majority. And you just shifted a whole bunch of seats into states that typically, historically, so far, have voted Republican. So this may have a very, very, the reason I bring this up is, is, this, is this could have a very big impact on the midterm elections coming up just next year. Now, this is, you know, this is why, again, when we look at kind of this rush to push things through, right? So you may not have known over the weekend, uh, the federal government just passed through a requirement of the 1619 project, which is for the education department. And so now all schools will have to teach the 1619 project mandate in order to get federal funding. Right? And this is one of those things that was kind of pushed through in the middle of the night. Nobody really kind of knew about it. Um, so this is going to push a lot of parents to start looking at homeschooling and private schooling and other options. But this is why there's such a rush to pass infrastructure, stimulus bills, all this, because this is it's going to become much more difficult with assuming that the Senate stays split 50-50. There's a really good possibility that you could see a flip of the House in the midterm elections, and of course, if you lose one of the House, or if you lose the House or the Senate, either one, it's going to make it much more difficult to pass these more ambitious uh, socialistic type programs. So, um, this is this is not for not, you know, you know, when you look at this, this is really a, a bit more important than just first glance of just oh yeah, I'll just kind of move some seats around, it could very well have some real impact in the midterm elections, which is just a little over a year from now, right, next November. So we'll, we'll be talking about this very soon um, when we start looking at, at voting season coming back up. So um, also another big thing about the census is that demographics are destiny, right? We've had the lowest population growth since the 1940s. In the 1940s, we grew about 7.3% over a decade, right, over a decade. Over the last 10 years, we've grown at about 7.4%. That is down from 9.7% in 2010 and 13% growth in 2000. This has a a lot of impacts, uh, of course, longer term, because that means that we're not having a birth rate, right? So we've got a big age of baby boomers that are moving through the system, they're gonna start dying off, and your younger working labor force that's required to support those older individuals are simply not there. We've got the lowest birth rate since the 1940s, and immigration is also a quality. And there's two types of immigration. You have immigration that is healthy for economic growth and immigration that's not. The immigration we have coming across the border is not healthy for economic growth. The immigration we need for for, for economic growth, we don't have. So to a great degree, that's a, and that's been very slow. So this has, and as Will Rogers once says, is demographics are destiny. This has everything to do with why we have slower rates of economic growth. And when you're growing an economy at a rate, barely, barely, if you're growing an economy, barely at a rate to, to just absorb the growth in the population, you don't create what we call liftoff or economic viability where you have sustainable growth over time. So this is why, you know, we talk about the fact we're gonna have a 6% pop in, in, in economic growth this year, all driven by stimulus. And then it immediately goes away because you don't have any follow-up. And everything falls back to the lowest possible common denominator, and that's basically population growth. Okay. So when we come back from the break, though, I want to get into the Fed meeting. That's tomorrow. There are some interesting things that are coming up um, in the Fed meeting specifically about... You know, when are they going to start tapering? What's the expectations? And particularly more important than that, when are they going to start hiking interest rates? You know, a lot of people believe right now, it's like, oh, it's never going to happen. might be coming sooner than you think. And I'll tell you why when we come back from the break. But this is why all eyes are going to be on the Fed tomorrow. And of course, on Thursday after the meeting, we'll certainly follow up with the actual announcement and, and details with Michael Leibowitz. But in the meantime, sit tight. Don't go away. We'll come back. We'll get into the Fed meeting watch. We've also got to talk about why Rates of return will be low over the next decade. That's all coming up on the rest of the show here. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, for the Real Investment Show, Real That's the
0: way you do it. You pay on the MTV. That ain't working. That's the way you do it. Money for nothing and jigs for free. Not any working. Listen place, anytime at realinvestmentadvice.com. Didn't get enough last Lunch & Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch & Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and... And how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties it's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on medicare thursday may 6th register now at realinvestmentadvice.com no masks required you're listening to the real investment show
1: back this morning so uh the fed meeting right around the corner of uh of course tomorrow <laughs> so what's the fed going to do right this is the big uh the big question right there this is really kind of everybody's thing right i'm in the market don't want to do anything because the fed's doing liquidity so the whole question is is when is the fed going to stop doing liquidity right the belief is right now it's like oh they're never going to stop maybe the case not arguing that point but A few things to keep a watch on for tomorrow. If you take a look at inflation um, as a function of the post-recovery, right? Inflation's running a lot hotter than what official measures of CPI suggest, right? Now CPI is running right around two and a half percent inflation. If you kind of take a look at the uh, the inflation that's been caused, you know, post-pandemic, as you know, we kind of. Get things back in action. Toilet paper prices, Um, you know, we've got a lot of shortages. I think used car prices, semiconductor prices, all these things are shooting through the roof. Lumber prices because of shortages, right? So the actual inflation is actually a lot hotter than what CPI suggests. Plus, there's a lot of manipulations that going on with CPI anyway uh, to suppress that rate. Why? Um, Well, we started suppressing CPI back in the late '90s after Bill Clinton borrowed. $2 Two trillion dollars from Social Security to balance the budget, and to get the you know get the country into a surplus for about twelve minutes, uh, the Boston Commission is brought in to readjust the way that we calculate CPI in order to suppress the rate of CPI growth because that is a direct contributor to increased payments for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Right, so we had to figure out a way. To suppress the rate of of what we report as inflation that's when we swapped out home prices for homeowners equivalent rent we've done all these uh uh, kind of manipulations of cpi with things called hedonics Uh, this is where a computer you bought back in the 90s is actually more deflationary today because it does so much more at the same price and all this kind of other nonsense right used to be that we just based CPI on a basket of goods. You went to the store, you bought a basket of goods, and you just measured that same basket of goods year over year. And what was the price change? There you go, right? So we got away from that because inflation was running too hot, and we couldn't have that. And so we've tried to come up with continued ways to suppress inflation, the measure of inflation, so we don't have to pay as much in benefits. That's it. That's 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 the whole big secret behind inflation. That's why nobody buys off on the inflation number. They're like, have you been to the gas station lately? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is, is they don't want to pay more out in Social Security because um, it's big, right? It's a seventy trillion. It's actually closer to ninety trillion dollars of unfunded liability. So, yeah, small changes to inflation mean a lot. Um, but this is, you know, and, and we're also seeing this. But we're seeing these higher. Prices being reflected into earnings calls. And more and more companies are starting to talk about inflation as a part of their earnings. And in terms of higher prices, higher import prices, higher export prices, higher commodity prices, higher wage costs, all that inflation is being absorbed into the company, and that suppresses profitability. So a company has two choices, of course, either to absorb that and reduce profitability, or they have to pass it on to consumers. The problem with passing it on to consumers is, is that consum- you know, consumers, 70% of the economy is consumption. Higher prices to households mean they can buy less with their money, and wages really aren't rising all that fast. So how many households are concerned about higher prices? 46% say they're very concerned 41% say they're somewhat concerned, and people that don't live, say they're 14, you know, 14% or fourteen of those people, uh, say they're not concerned at all about <laughs> higher inflation. Um, you know, uh, you know, generally, the people that are most concerned about inflation are the people in the bottom, bottom 80% of your population that live pretty much pay to, paycheck to paycheck. If you're not concerned about inflation, you're probably in the top 10%, right? You've got plenty of discretionary cash flow inflation is not that big of a problem um, and and that actually shows up in the data if you take a look at where um, inflation is showing up the most and and where people are more concerned about it it's in lower it's it's in you know people making between fifty and $100,000, hundred thousand hundred fifty thousand dollars right so lower income brackets Um But this is also going to lead to, so this spike in inflation, and of course, as we get then a lot of this inflationary pressure right now is being driven by all these stimulus payments. And that is all now kind of in the rearview mirror. And as we run through stimulus payments and tax refunds, very likely we're going to see economic growth peak in this quarter. And we'll start to see that regression back towards the long-term growth rate of the economy, which is going to be somewhere around 2%. Maybe a little bit less coming out of this cycle. So for the next year, like I said, we're going to probably average somewhere around six and a half percent, you know, real economic growth after inflation. And 2021 Um, and 2022, that's likely going to drop down somewhere around you know one and three quarters, two percent. And that's not surprising because that's where the economic growth is, right? And we even talked about this in yesterday, in this weekend's article about what are interest rates telling us. Interest rates are telling you that economic growth is around 2%, real, real economic growth. Now, stimulus is creating the excess. But once that, once we, bar- it's like, uh, you know, kind of like throwing gasoline on your driveway, right? You can light <laughs> you can light the gasoline and your driveway will light on fire until the gasoline burns off. And then you're just left with the driveway with a big stain on it. Um, that's the economy, right? We're going to just kind of light some gasoline on concrete for a moment. It's going to burn really hot, and then the, the gasoline is going to burn off, and we're just left with you know what we had before. But this is all going to kind of play into the Fed's you know kind of outlook here over the course of the next you know few months. Um, right now, U.S. financial conditions are easier, right? We've got the easiest financial conditions because of all the accommodation and liquidity coming from the Fed. We've ever had in history, in fact, lower than it was in 1999. But that's also an important point. Whenever we've previously had lows in financial easiness, when were they? 1999, 2008, 2000 and late 2014. And of course, you had 15, 16 was your taper tantrum. You had two 20 percent declines in late 2015 and early 2016. Uh, late 2017, we had really easy financial conditions. You had a 20% decline in 2018. Had pretty easy conditions in February of 2020, and then you had March. And now you've got the easiest financial conditions on record. So what this tells you is, is that whenever you have periods of really easy financial conditions, they don't tend to last long and you tend to get a reversal, which suggests that the Fed may be closer to actually tightening up on their monetary accommodations sooner rather than later. And in fact, if you take a look at where money's flowing right now, there's a lot of money flowing into Treasury and agency securities, primarily by central banks. In other words, there's this closed loop between the Treasury, the banks, and the Fed, and about 28% of all the lending is going between that closed loop. So it's not going into the economy. It's just fostering this whole liquidity push in the markets. But again, this is also points where you begin to see this, this turn. And right now, a lot of economists are starting to suggest that we're going to see the Fed starting to slow these purchases from $120 billion a month, start to slow those down as soon as the third quarter and probably in the fourth quarter of this year. And then we'll probably start talking about rate hikes sometime in twenty early 2022, early to mid-2022. Once you begin that process, and and this is the thing about the markets, as soon as you start the process of tapering off QE, and specifically when you start talking about a rate hike, you start the clock ticking for the next market event, right? It's about nine months. So what that tells you is, is that once we get through the stimulus program They start tapering this and they start hiking rates. You've got about nine months until your next financial event, and that's going to be sometime late 2022, early 2023. If timing works out right now, there's a whole variety of things that could speed that process up, but you know, you're in the very late stage of this market advance, right? So, and, and particularly, if this is all driven by liquidity and Fed easy financial conditions. Watch those financial conditions because when they start to turn, that's when the clock starts ticking for a market event. And this and this kind of leads us, and again, we're gonna talk some more about this tomorrow, uh, sorry, on Thursday with Michael Leibowitz once we actually have the Fed announcement out. We'll get into some of the details of what they say, kind of peg down this timing a bit. But this the, But this idea of tightening also leads us back to this, you know, this idea of why forward returns on markets will continue to fall. And as we discussed yesterday, that suggested that somewhere in the next you know, few years, there will be a fairly decent bear market event that will reduce valuations and lower forward returns. And But what I want to go through when we come back from the break is to talk a little bit about some of the myths right now that are being run around the markets to try to justify overpaying for stocks, right? And this is the key point. If we overpay for value today, you're going to wind up really paying that price down the road. Well, there's three different kind of, you know, excuses being rationalization, shall we say, put out in the markets right now about why you should be okay overpaying for assets. It's going to be fine this time. Is it? We'll talk about those when we come back from the break because you'll know them when you hear them. Don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts on The Real Investment Show. Get by the website. Our technically speaking post is up on the website right now, by the way. Um, simply go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on our technically, technically speaking post. While you're there, also make sure and sub- click the YouTube channel link. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch our live videos as we produce them, as well as our three-minute uh, market on money videos every day that we put out. And uh, also click on our newsletter link for our weekly newsletter. It's all there for you at the website. It's absolutely free, of course, realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: Listening to the Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last Lunch and Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch and Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon. We'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare Parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch and Learn on Medicare. Thursday, May 6th. Register now at Real Investment. Advice com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to so the morning six forty-seven. So just talking a little bit about the myths. Uh, that are out there. This is a follow-up to yesterday's article on the website. So really, you kind of need to go to the website, Real Investment Advice. Click on yesterday's article about why low returns in the future are all but guaranteed. um, And then follow that up with future uh, forward returns continue to fall because this really kind of covers the myths of the markets and why future returns will be low. Um, You'll know some of these myths when you hear them because you hear them so often on you know, in, in the mainstream media. But what's important to note is, is that we've had a very, very outsized return in the markets in in the month of March. And really kind of, it was March and a little bit into April um, before we kind of got our, mo- our money flow sell signal and markets kind of stagnated here for a couple of weeks. But that advance that we saw in March was one of the largest going all the way back into the 1930s. And why that's important is, is, that is generally a peak of when you see that type of advance in a month, that's generally kind of an exhaustion move in the markets. Um, you know, it's a kind of a buying stampede. And and you don't see them repeat themselves kind of over and over and over again. In fact, that's kind of the peak for a period. And then you start to get slower kind of monthly growth rate. So what that suggests is that likely over the next few months, upside in the market is somewhat limited. And again, this goes back to what we've talked about before, where, you know, you've you know you've got a period in the summer where we may see a bit more um, you know headwind for the markets. But importantly, you know when we go back and look, you know, you know we see these cycles over time, bull markets and bear markets. And as we've noticed, as we've talked about before, you know there's only been about five periods out of the last you know one hundred and forty years. Um, you go to an advisor that says, ah, if you just, they show you charted the S&P. If you look, if you just put your money in the market, you made 8% a year over the last 140 years, you're a billionaire, right? Well, out of that entire 140 years, there's only been about five little short periods in there where you actually made all those returns. The rest of the time either spent making no money or losing money, right? And that's an important concept to understand. But this comes back to the way the markets work, right? We're always trying to adjust. The media is always trying to justify why you should always have your money in the markets, right? You've got to be invested because if you're not invested, you're missing out, right? Well, it's all about when you invest rather than should you invest, right? What makes the difference between whether or not you made a lot of money in the markets in the 80s and 90s or made no money in the market between 2000 and 2017 was when you started investing, that's always, that's always the issue, right? And that's why you when know, we talked about in an article yesterday is that starting investing today is fine, but you are paying exceptionally high valuations really across the board. Market cap, GDP, Tobin's Q, CAPE, price of sales, record levels of valuation. Higher than the dot-com peak, right? So your returns in the future are going to be low. So investing today is likely not going to work out that great for a lot of people over the next decade. And this is where, you know, we, we talk about valuations. And whenever you have, you know, the, the valuations of the market and you have high valuations with exceptionally low volatility, as we have today. And there's only been a couple other periods in history where we saw, you know, this type of, of situation with high valuations and low volatility that typically preceded fairly decent bear markets. But one of the myths is is low rates justify high valuations, right? Low interest rates justify high valuations. So because interest rates are low, we can discount the P, and price to earnings. People forget you also have to discount the E because that means lower lower economic growth, right? Low interest rates equals low economic growth, which equals lower earnings. It suggests that's the problem, right? And if we go back through history, we can see that whenever there's been a period where you had low interest rates and high valuations, really markets haven't worked out that well So for, for investors. And in fact, we can do just a, a correlation between yields on the 10-year treasury and valuations. And we can see that basically there is no correlation between low interest rates generating high returns in markets and justifying high valuations. There's no correlation of that. And... That's one of the problems here. Is that we've bought into this idea that low interest rates justify high, valu- by high valuations, but that's not the case. Another one that you hear often is that well, earnings yield, you know, that's you know, the, which is the inverse of valuations. <laughs> earnings yield's low, so I justify high, you know, paying you know, paying a lot of money for for stocks, right? Again, we come back to this idea and say, look, whenever there's been a period of time where you've had very low earnings yields and high valuations, that hasn't worked out well either on forward return basis. In fact, if we go and and look at a correlation between low yields, low earning yields, and forward returns, what we find is, is that there's there's a fairly reasonable correlation between Low earnings yields equaling low forward returns. In fact, where we are today suggests that your returns over the next decade are be somewhere between zero and 5%. Another myth we hear is that um, this actually came from Dr. Robert Schiller, right? So the guy that created CAPE, the sickly adjusted price earnings ratio, which was made famous during the crash and the dot-com crisis, has even recently come out trying to justify high valuations. He says, okay, well, let's take my CAPE valuation and let's flip it around and and call it the excess CAPE yield. And that justifies high valuations. Well, it's not really the case. We find exactly the same thing is that very low CAPE yields also equal basically peaks in markets. And there's a fairly high correlation here between where CAPE yields are currently trading and forward returns over the next 10 years. And this suggests also that yields are going to be somewhere between zero and 5%. So all these justifications that are thrown out there have no real historical precedent for suggesting you can overpay for valuations. And That's the problematic part of this, is that we continue to buy into this idea that we can pay for companies that have no income and no earnings, and we're going to be okay. Why? Not because of the fundamentals of the company. No, heaven forbid, right? We're not buying any fundamentals. We're buying companies with no income. But we're buying it based on the fact that, A, we don't want to miss out on the market move, and B, it's the Fed, right? And this is the moral hazard that we've written about before is that what the Federal Reserve has done is provide this believed insurance policy that, hey, they're not going to let the markets go down. Hey, I'm not arguing the point because it certainly seems to be the case. Every time the market uh, has a little dip here, we see accelerated bond buying by the Federal Reserve to put liquidity into the market to push asset prices back up. So, you know, there's certainly a good case for that insurance policy. The question is, will it always be there? And the other problem becomes is that at what point is the efficacy of Fed intervention no longer viable? And we don't know what that point is, right? We don't know where that point is. How much of the bond market can the Fed own before it disrupts the credit market? We don't know because we haven't got there yet. This is all unprecedented stuff. This is stuff that has never been done before to this degree in history. Now, have have we had federal interventions before? Yeah, absolutely. Right? In various forms. But not ever to this degree. What we do know is, is that, yes, while we're floating asset prices higher, the top 10% of income earners continue to own more and more of the stock market. The bottom 80% continue to not. The wealth gaps continue to widen and we get more angst over the ills of capitalism. As we talked a little bit about yesterday, and I've got an article coming up on this in the next week or so, is that it's not capitalism that's broken, it's corporatism. But this is what we fostered. It's the politicians we vote for. It's our consumptive behaviors. It's our demands for convenience. It's our inability to change our behaviors. It's also the fact that corporations have a right to vote (laughs) and they have lobbies that support congressmen and pass bills in their favor and do things that are not inherently good for capitalism And have convinced, and our corporations have convinced, our banks primarily have convinced Congress that they're systemically important and can't afford to go out of business because, well, if they go out of business, it's all over. How do we know? For sure. but this is the environment that we've gotten ourselves in into, you know, this economy where we are today. And again, it's just where we are, but it's important to understand that as an investor, right? This is your retirement. There's two important things you always have to remember about your money is that one, when a financial advisor shows you a chart of a 180 year period of the market and says, Hey, since the 1850s, markets have only gone up. Understand two things. one, you're not going to live 180 years. And two, there are long periods of time. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years where markets went nowhere. They went up and down a lot, but they didn't go anywhere and you didn't make any money and actually after inflation, you almost lost money. So it's important to understand two things. One, what is your time frame to retirement when you're going to need your money? And B, where are you within the market cycle in terms of what you're paying in terms of valuation as expected to what your forward returns are going to be between now and the time that you need your money? I'm Real Saints Roberts, wrapping up today's show. That article on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. And uh, while you're there, like I said before, sign up for our YouTube channel, get subscribed there, subscribe for our newsletter. We'll send you our newsletter on Saturdays, keep you up to date with what we're doing with our portfolios, and try to help you with your money the best you can. It's absolutely free, of course, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow on the hump day edition of the Real Investment Show, right here at realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: Get daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet sign up for the real investment report now at realinvestmentadvice.com listen is